This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good afternoon, and welcome to this Rand call with the experts. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at Rand, and today the topic is the spread of coronavirus COVID-19. Uh, joining us are five of Rand's top health policy experts. With me here in Santa Monica is Mashid Abir. Afternoon. Uh, Mashid is an emergency physician and a RAND researcher. In our Washington office, we have Jennifer Bowie, an epidemiologist, senior policy researcher, and the Tang Chair in China Policy Studies. Great to be here. Thank you. And we have uh, several folks calling in. We have senior policy researchers Lori Usher-Pines. Hello. Good afternoon. Hi. And Andrew Mulcahy. Glad to be here. Hi, Andrew. And also behavioral and social scientist Liz Patrun Sayers. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? Hi, Liz. Uh, Senior media advisor Warren Roback is also here with me in Santa Monica. So uh, let's begin. Uh, Can we put this pandemic, if it's okay to use that word, uh, into perspective? Uh, Jennifer, maybe you could start. Uh, Has the situation peaked or is it just getting started? Where are we? Well, I think we see different clusters uh, in the world now. Certainly now, it's uh, the COVID-19 is not just a China problem. Uh, in fact, after February, uh, end of February, we see that the cases uh, grows faster outside China than inside China. However, China is still having the 85% of the confirmed cases. Uh, that's over 80,000. Uh, and 88% of the, the deaths from uh, uh, coronavirus now is in, uh, still in Wuhan, uh, Hubei province. Um, so I would say that in, it looks like in China, they, uh, after a very dramatic uh, quarantine procedure, uh, they started uh, with one city, then expanded to 16 cities. And at one point during the Chinese New Year, all 31 um, provinces uh, were ha- having the, uh, the public health emergency level one. Uh, so they were just starting to try to get people back to, to work and, and uh economy back to start, restart. Um, But even with that, uh, I think now we definitely see case numbers are continuing to go down. But at the same time, we see that uh, we at least have a East Asia uh, cluster starting from uh, Korea uh, and Japan. Uh, we have Iran had, we're reporting a lot more cases every day. And in Europe, uh, Italy is another epicenter. Uh, and U.S. will probably see more cases in the coming days. So now we definitely have more clusters. Uh, so when it will peak, uh, it's hard to, to predict, but I think it will come in waves. But it hasn't peaked yet, would be your perspective. I think globally, I, I don't think we have peaked. So we'll probably see much more cases from uh, many other countries uh, around the world uh, in the second quarter, uh, and maybe it will uh, goes to third quarter for for countries that doesn't uh, have the capacity to test to, for testings. Uh, maybe one more question for you, Jennifer. Uh, have we learned lessons from China? Uh, will those lessons help contain the virus? Yeah, China has responded quite dramatically at this time. Uh, they certainly were the first to uh, identify the new virus and 
share that information with the world. I think that's important because now we ha can use that information to develop uh, testing and linking the, the cases and also monitor the uh, virus uh, mutation. Then the quarantine, uh, I don't know any other country can do the same thing, but uh, I think in, in a way it does buy some time and slow down the transmission for a while. But I don't think any travel ban or quarantine can completely protect an area. This disease is highly contagious and there are lots of mild cases. In fact, China recently, just today, reported 70, uh, 75 cases that uh, are imported. That means uh, people coming to China that have tested positive. So I don't think any of these uh, social distancing policy can, be, can provide 100% uh, proof. Mashid, uh, Jennifer has mentioned a number of things that steps that are being taken to try to contain it. How is it looking to you from the U.S. perspective? So um, I think that uh, it's going to be, you know, uh, CDC is predicting that the transmission rate is going to go up in the coming weeks. And that's in the setting of a flu season uh, that is uh, still pretty active and pretty severe cases of, of the flu and a lot of flu diagnosis, people presenting to emergency departments um, so is it easy to tell the difference between a more standard flu and... No, no. It, it's very difficult. Okay. So very similar symptoms. So I think that you're going to see a lot of people uh, concerned uh, uh, from mild symptoms to severe symptoms showing up to emergency departments and hospitals um, and ambulatory care uh, setting not being able to be responsive to the needs. Uh, so I think that we need to take these coming weeks and the health systems need to evaluate their surge plans and make sure that they identify gaps and are ready to respond because people are going to come, whether they have the flu or just the common cold or coronavirus. And what, how is that affecting the mood in hospitals and emergency rooms? I mean, is, it, or is there a sense of panic or grim determination or what, what is it? Um, so, you know, on an average day, a lot of health systems and hospitals, um, particularly in urban centers, operate near or at capacity already. So mm. we're already strained. Uh, so what is complicating this picture is uh, healthcare providers, you know, nurses, physicians, respiratory therapists, and so on, uh, who are, would be concerned to come to work because they're worried that they may, may uh, get get it, get the disease, um, and it adds a la layer of concern, right? So normally you're operating um, at high capacity, and that is a stress. But add the stress of the unknown of of how um, infectious the disease is and uh, concerns you may have for your family. Uh, so I think it just makes it much more complicated. What about, uh, I'd like to ask both you and Andrew about diagnostic tests. Are, are, are the tests there and there aren't enough? Or where do we stand with, with diagnostic tests? Yeah, I think the difficulty is determining uh, who to test. And a lot of the recommendations are, are changing around that. So again, you have to realize this in the context of uh, you know, symptomology that's very similar to the, to the flu and sometimes even the common cold. So I think that the, the, this, the, there needs to be consistent messaging around when to test and who to test. And I don't think we're quite there yet. I'm interested to hear Andrew's thought on that. Yeah, Andrew, can you weigh in on the diagnostic tests? Or even um, once you get past the issue of who to test, there's still some pretty fundamental issues around the availability of a test in the U.S. So there were some pretty uh, serious missteps in the initial push to get a diagnostic test out in the field. There were concerns about an ineffective ingredient and 
contamination in the first set of test kits that were sent out to state labs. Um, and until very recently, um, likely due to these concerns, all the testing was happening uh, at CDC in Atlanta. Now, over the past couple of weeks, there's been a real push to get more uh, diagnostic test kits out to laboratories and, and more labs able to, to do the testing. Um, just the other day, uh, I think early this week, the Health and Human Services Secretary announced that there were about uh, 75,000 tests out there. Uh, this is, I think, probably only a fraction of what we need um, moving forward. It really feels like we're playing catch-up here a, a bit to get the public health uh, departments and and uh, and others the tools they need to do this testing to make effective diagnoses. Um, it does seem like other countries are maybe a bit more on top. Oh, sorry, Jeff, go ahead. No, I just wonder if this is a matter of the – is this a matter of the technology or is it a matter of capacity or both? Yeah, I'm not sure it's a, it's, tech, it's the technology per, per se because there are um, uh, other countries that that have um, uh, rolled out testing on a much broader scale. So as of uh, last weekend, uh, the United Kingdom had tested more than 10,000 people, and by the same point, we had only tested 500 people in the U.S. So, um, uh, you know, former FDA commissioner. Uh, Scott Gottlieb said that uh, he, he thought by the end of this week we'd be testing 10,000 people a day, which um, you know seems like a, a, a massive uh, ramp up in a very short time. It might be possible to do it, but that seems more like the kinds of numbers we might ultimately want to get to in terms of our testing needs in the U.S. It strikes a, a need, machine that should a great priority be placed on getting more of these testing capabilities into the field? Is that essential? I think it's essential, but also uh, concurrent with that, disease containment, I think, is really important as well. So I think diagnostics are really important, but also um, effective and quick identification of, of, uh, of potential cases. And, and for example, you go to any emergency room, waiting room, and there could be 30 to 50 people in very close proximity sing, sitting next to each other. And that's a potential uh, risk for people contracting the disease. So I think that concurrent with diagnostics, uh, as far as lab tests are concerned, we need to be very proactive in the hospitals to make sure that we protect people and we screen them at the point of entry. So whether that is the ambulatory care clinic or it is the emergency department, whatever setting the point of entry is. Uh, so we need to make sure that we're doing both kind of in parallel and not focusing on one at the risk of the other. Do any of you have a sense how, sticking with the, the, the diagnostic tests, how the U.S. compares with other countries in terms of getting them out into the field, producing them? Yeah, I mean, the the, the numbers I've seen is that we're, we're uh, uh, way behind many other countries in terms of tests to date. I, I don't think that necessarily reflects what will happen over the next couple of weeks in terms of our capability to do more. Um, but it does seem like the very small number of, of tests run so far in the U.S. seems um, to be really related to these uh uh, kind of missteps early in the rollout in the U.S. that maybe didn't happen in other countries. Okay. Let's, let's shift to one other tactic we've heard a fair amount about, which is a vaccine. Uh, any any sense for how close we are to a vaccine? Who would like that? Yeah, you know, I, I, um, I think it's important um, not to gloss over what's involved in developing a new vaccine or a treatment uh, and then getting approval to use it use it in patients. Uh, I just did some Googling a, a, a little while ago, and 
you know, half of the hits on the first page gave you the impression that the vaccine was right around the corner. Um, and I don't think that's the case. Um, you know, even with everything industry could do to marshal resources and everything that the government and FDA could do to fast track everything around clinical testing and regulatory approval, it's still a relatively long process to develop a new drug. Um, you know, there are several companies that are working on vaccines and other companies that are that are getting funding from the government via an, an, a part of the government called the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority to develop treatments, which are different than vaccines. Um, I think we should just be careful not to expect that a vaccine or treatment will be available anytime soon. And when it will be first available, it'll be for the testing that's required um, before it could be rolled out more broadly to patients. There's also um, a set of important policy and business considerations after it is available. Um, after a vaccine or treatment's approved by the FDA and other regulatory agencies around the world, uh, there's an important issue of how an initially small supply of that vaccine or drug uh, would be used not just in the U.S., but globally. Uh, manufacturers can set basically whatever prices they want in the U.S. Prices in the U.S. For, for drugs and vaccines tend to be very high compared to other countries, and so other uh, so companies may have a uh, uh, financial interest in launching and selling in the U.S. first, um, which could be good for U.S. patients, but have implications for patients in the rest of the world. Um, you know, there are issues around um, uh, how how drugs would get to patients and how much we'd pay. So as recently as yesterday, um, th there was a, 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 a $7.5 billion coronavirus response package that's, that's going through Congress right now. It seems stalled. And the sticking point uh, seems to be disagreement over provisions on a vaccine price, controlling the price of a vaccine, and then how much patients would be on the hook to pay in the U.S. Um, so in the long term, I think vaccines and treatments for coronavirus are in play. They will be in play, but it's not like a month or two. It's like a year plus probably until they're uh, available for use. And even when they are available, they're important questions about how they get to patients, especially initially when there isn't much of, of them, and at what price. All right, maybe we could move to some of the other aspects. Uh, how about schools? Uh, my son actually is in school in Tokyo, and schools there are all shut down. I, I hear that just today, Italy shut down all of its schools. Uh, maybe, Laurie, you could touch on the, the need or the possibility for widespread school closures in general and, and in the U.S.? Sure. So um, school closure is just really one type of social distancing measure that communities implement. Um, and it is most effective when it's combined with other community mitigation strategies, like encouraging people to work from home and canceling mass gatherings. So, you know, it works best when it's part of a multi-pronged strategy um, rather than just in isolation. There are a couple of different types of school closure. Um, there's preemptive school closure, and that is to really stop um, the disease from kind of coming to a community that's long before uh, disease is widespread. There's also reactive school closure, and that's school closure in response to, let's say, 10% of your students and your workforce being out because they're ill. So schools now in the U.S. are mostly considering preemptive school closure because, um, as we know, they're, they're not um, many cases yet in, in the United States. It's not to the point where you'd have to cancel school because of uh, major absenteeism. It might be premature now to, to think about closing schools, um, but I do think it's important for schools, 
local districts to, to really revisit um, and adapt some of their flu preparedness plans um, and consider how school closure might work. There are a lot of challenges uh, with school closure that um, schools should start thinking about ahead of time. Things like how they're going to maintain, continu maintain continuity of instruction, how lost instructional time is going to be made up. Um, for example, you know, many states have requirements about the number of school days or hours of instruction, um, and schools may need to apply for waivers um, if they're not going to meet those uh, minimum instructional hours. Schools also need to think about how to deliver free or reduced price lunches to kids who really do depend on them. Um, schools feed a lot of children in the United States, and if schools closed, that can be very disruptive and, and problematic for families. And then also parents need to think about how they're going to be managing childcare. So there are a lot of different issues um, to, to plan for ahead of time. Are we already seeing some school closures in the U.S.? Um, we've seen some in Washington State. And and have we had much precedent uh, for these kinds of school closures in, in America before? Schools do close in emergencies, um, you know, frequently. There were many school closures in H1N1. There were school closures in hurricanes, Harvey and Irma. Um, you know, this is not, this doesn't happen infrequently in the United States. I mean, the most obvious example that people are familiar with is the snow day, you know, but these sort of longer school closures um, for weeks, months, those, those are uh, pretty rare in the United States and, and are very disruptive for, for families and for learning. Okay. Anyone else want to weigh in on schools? If not, I'm thinking to shift to uh, travel. Uh, Liz, maybe you could uh, talk a bit about some of the travel impacts and and a bit of the, the myths versus reality about that uh, that element. Yep, happy happy to do that. So, um, you know, there's uh, a, a lot of information out there right now. I mean, really, um, the key things to consider are, you know, CDC recommendations for postponing and canceling travel. Um, the way that they look at it is they have three levels. So there's a watch level one, alert level two, and warning level three. Um, Jennifer already talked about really some of the warning level three countries, which are um, China, Iran, South Korea, and Italy. Um, and so in those cases, CDC recommends that travelers avoid all non-essential travel um, to those level three uh, countries um, because of the high risk of getting COVID-19. Uh, you know, there's also a lot of discussion right now kind of related to, you know, should should we travel? Should I be canceling travel? Um, you know, I think, again, it really depends on kind of where the travel is to and also, for example, what the purpose of it is. Uh, you know, if there are extremely large gatherings, um, you know, if there's large conferences, folks might make a, a decision to um, tailor back travel to those types of events. In terms of fear about traveling, you know, there's also a lot of discussion about, you know, um, the filtration systems on airplanes, for example. So generally speaking, you know, how air is filtered on airplanes, uh, most viruses and other germs are not going to spread easily in that case. I mean, um, at this point, given what we know about uh, COVID spread with, um, you know, droplets and, uh, you know, the kind of the range uh, related to that. The general advice is to try to avoid folks that are sick. Um, of course, that can be hard on airplanes, so you really have to use your best uh, judgment about that. Um, there is also a lot of uh, rumors going around in a couple places I can kind of mention. 
One of them is related to um, masks. So uh, again, just kind of reiterating an important point about that. Um, you do not need to uh, wear a face mask um, to protect yourself unless you are sick and trying to protect the spread of illness to others. Um, I've also seen a couple things on social media related to personal protective equipment or PPE. Um, you don't need PPE to board a plane at this point. Um, there are kind of some humorous uh, images and things going around right now about people traveling in, in PPE. Um, but of course, that is, uh, you know, again, on the humorous rumor side. Um, and then I think, again, the other thing is just kind of the air on the plane and folks are a little concerned about that. Um, so there's a couple PPE, things I'm thinking about. Personal protective equipment. I, I assume you mean something yeah, beyond exactly. the Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, if you can imagine you like, like a, a full suit? body. Yeah, if you can conjure an image of that in your mind, it's close to that. And, and, the, and the masks uh, are not terribly helpful for those who are not sick because they are not, what's the, uh, it's a 95, which means, and, and these, these particles are too small, they can still get through. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So they're providing mostly a bit of psychological support, I suppose, if, if that. There's two different types of masks. I mean, the type of mask that uh, I think most people would be able to access are kind of like standard surgical masks, um, but those actually aren't really going to provide you any protection um, co from COVID-19. So that's more of just, um, it might help uh, folks feel better, um, but isn't going to provide a lot of actual protection. Mashid, any further point on the masks? Um, so apparently they are um, the masks, the surgical masks, there's a big demand for them in the U.S. Uh, because so many people are out going to get them. So I think it's so important uh, to uh, put the message, the right message out there that this is not effective uh, yeah. because it's not working and people are basically, it's just a reflection of the mass hysteria around COVID-19. Liz, maybe a little bit more on from you on on mass hysteria and and how the public is is taking this. What how, how would you grade the level of information that is out there? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So you know, when I was thinking uh, about kind of how to frame this, you know, in my mind, I kept coming back to this point that you know, there's always a challenge between balancing facts and fear. Um, you know, this response is really no different than other responses we've dealt with in the past. Um, just in terms of how things are playing out right now, I think um, it's no surprise to anyone that there's a lot of attention and interest um, from the general public. Um, we have a lot of media attention. And so, you know, in terms of kind of how much is too much, uh, I think this is a little tricky because we are in the space where the immediate risk in the U.S. is low to, you know, an average person, um, but there's still a need to take precautions right now. And so I think it's really difficult to um, kind of uh, consider those two points at the same time that, you know, right now risk is generally low, but we need to be doing things to prepare. Um, and I think folks can kind of hear the preparedness message and um, just assume the worst is coming. But this is generally, um, again, in line how things play out. I mean, it's really easy to focus on the fear factor, but, you know, it remains critical to kind of consider that technical risk factor. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, thinking about risk, again, just kind of a, a point about uh, acknowledging both that technical risk aspect and also the risk perception aspect. So um, those are two different things, and uh, you can actually have an imbalance in either category. So when we're thinking about risk, risk perception here, 
um, there is so much media attention right now, and there is a lot of heightened concern and uncertainty surrounding this emergency. So I would say that risk perception side is high. Um, but the tech, again, the technical risk right now to the average person remains low. And so I think to the extent that we can kind of look to both of those categories and make sure that we're trying to manage um, both is the best way to try to, uh, again, um, attend to both elements of how uh, people perceive risk on both that subjective side and the technical side. Are there any particular conspiracy theories out there that you would like to dispel or highlight? Uh, there, there are always conspiracy theories, um, uh, and you know, I will. Uh, I mean, basically, the the kind of main one is that um, any kind of virus's origin is um, something uh, that was intentional rather than a natural occurrence. Uh, so, for example, mm-hmm. this would um, you know be thinking about okay, this is uh, you know a bio weapon and not not, not something that just um, naturally occurred. That's happening right now online in various places. Um, there's always going to be, you know, rumors and conspiracy theories. Um, this is something that happens time and time again. Um, the reason that these pop up is because these types of uh, theories can sometimes help reduce anxiety um, from a cognition standpoint. So if, if folks are looking um, for explanations, you know, rumors or these types of conspiracy theories, theories can actually um, sometimes help folks feel better. So that's kind of why they can be appealing. Um, but uh, I think the big one, again, is just always kind of that speculation around the origin of a virus. And so this, this um, again, happens every time uh, there is uh, an, out- an outbreak like this. So, again, it's very common. Um, I think what's interesting about uh, this case, though, is that there's a lot of uncertainty um, kind of related to skepticism around China's public health systems. I think just, you know, the fact that um, this originated in China and folks felt that there were there was difficulty um, in uh, kind of understanding what was happening uh, in China uh, immediately made this kind of um, more of a challenge for, uh, you know, ensuring that there weren't rumors and conspiracy theories popping up. So I just think um, just that general kind of the case of how this uh, really started um, made this right. For people to spread additional theories. Jennifer, do you want to weigh in on that particular conspiracy theory? Yes. Um, um, yeah, I, I completely agree uh, with uh, the discussion. Um, I they are. I think there are usually two other epidemics happening when there's a, a disease epidemic, and that one of them is the disinformation, uh, the rumors, and the conspiracy theories. Another one is a stigma uh, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, discrimination. So in terms of disinformation, uh, uh, we found uh, it's truly, a, it's almost like an army of, uh, of a conspiracy theories out there. Uh, some, you know, pointing to China, some pointing to the U.S., but it's, it's really when people are not sure what's going on, uh, they usually uh, make a lot of stories and try to um, uh, make it rational. Yeah, so I do think that uh, no matter where it starts, especially when the case numbers starting to go up, uh, people are start to have more fear and anxiety. You will see this uh, more uh, common. Okay, uh, we have one email follow up to an earlier question, which I think would be for you, Lori. Which is this is from Arnold asking, what will the criteria be for school closures 
and what will it be for lifting the closures? Great. It's a a very good question. Um, In the United States, it's up to the school district to make that determination. So you could have a situation where school districts are making different decisions than neighboring school districts, and that can be a real problem for communication um, and be frustrating for parents. So um, it still is a local decision, um, and schools uh, have to consider a variety of different things, um, including um, absenteeism from illness, as well as whether or not parents are likely to keep kids from school out of fear, even if they're not sick. So you you may cancel school just because no one is going to be willing to show up um, given uh, perceptions of risk in the community. So it's very challenging to manage this. Um, School districts often look to guidance from the CDC, um, and that can be helpful um, on this in making that decision. Okay, thank you. All right, let's let's, uh, shift to economic effects. Uh, And perhaps I could go back to to Andrew. Uh, For example... The we've already heard about one drug shortage because of supply chain disruptions. And uh, is this going to lead to more disruptions, more drug prices going through the roof? What what do you see there? Yeah, I think good good questions. I think uh it's hard to overstate just how global the prescription drug uh industry is. Uh many drugs used by patients in the US are manufactured outside the US and then imported here or manufactured in the U.S., but rely on inputs from other countries. And there's one uh, critical type of ingredient called an active pharmaceutical ingredient, or API, that are very often manufactured in in other countries like China and India. Uh, Something like 80% of APIs uh, in the entire world are manufactured in, in just China. Uh, so when you know, uh, uh, coronavirus uh, affects manufacturing in these other countries, and you know, in this case, particularly China, um, the supply of these critical building blocks to making drugs dries up. Pills aren't rolling off the factory lines either in China, India, or here, and they, they, they don't get to pharmacies and they don't get to patients. Um, so as you mentioned, Jeff, there's already, uh, FDA has already announced one drug that's in shortage as a result of uh, coronavirus, um, we don't, and it was related to a, an API um, shortage. Uh, as of last week, uh, the FDA hadn't announced which drug was affected. There are shortages of drugs for other reasons, um, too, and FDA uh, keeps a list of which drugs are shortage. So one of the drugs on this list is now the cause of, uh, of novel coronavirus. We don't know which one. Um, I think the potential for more shortages is very real. Um, many generic drugs, which account for in the U.S., are manufactured in China and India. Repeat that last phrase. Um, you just broke up a minute there, Andrew. You said many drugs. Oh, sorry. Many generic drugs. Um, uh, these are uh, uh, drugs that don't, aren't sold under a brand name. They account for... Uh, somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of the total prescriptions filled in the U.S. Many of those drugs are manufactured in India, China. Um, India is a major hub of generic manufacturing, and many Indian manufacturers get their inputs from China. So, you know, the potential for uh, supply shortages uh, originating in China and elsewhere to affect the the flow of drugs into the U.S. is very real. 
And I think we should expect more shortages due to uh, the uh, uh, the related to coronavirus. You know, in terms of policy, I think we should start viewing um, the pharmaceutical industry as the global enterprise that it is. We have this tendency to think of it as a U.S.-based thing. Research is happening here, drugs are made here, and then get to patients in the U.S. That's just not true. Um, there are all of these issues around supply chain vulnerabilities that come with the fact that inputs and products are shipping all over the world. Uh, diseases, severe weather, like hurricanes in, in Puerto Rico uh, just recently, unrest, other kinds of disruptions halfway across the world, um, implications for drugs getting U.S. patients. So I think we should expect more disruptions around the uh, drug supply chains and, and prescription drugs in the short term. Uh, and I think we should expect disruptions in other kinds of products, uh, healthcare related and otherwise. Rashid, have you heard about any drug shortages in hospitals or ERs? Not yeah. yet, not yet. So we haven't, at least in our hospital, we haven't had any issues with drug shortages. But I definitely agree with Andrew that we probably will see that in the coming weeks and months. Is that because, will it be entirely because of shortages, do you think? Or could it be because of hoarding? I mean, that. that uh, I, I don't know. Somehow, maybe that's back to you, Andrew. That somehow, that there will be other types of disruptions to the supply chain. Yeah, I mean, there are, are unfortunately shortages of drugs for you know, a great many reasons, um, uh, and there is this kind of hoarding behavior that you mentioned, Jeff, and it creates a, a, a kind of great gray market for drugs, where where hospitals and uh, wholesalers are trying to buy up as much as they can when it, when they they see a shortage on the horizon or one one's in one's in place. So I think that kind of uh, uh, behavior is something that um, we should expect too, uh, and is probably something that uh, FDA and others uh, should be and probably are keeping a close eye on. I imagine. Uh, let me turn to Jennifer. I imagine there may be some other economic effects here, such as. Uh, Small and medium-sized businesses in China, uh, I understand, are feeling some pinch. What What do you see there? Uh, so I, we were just looking at uh, economic impact uh, of coronavirus on on China. Uh, what happened uh, reported a couple of days ago is that the PMI, the uh, basically the Purchasing Managers Index, this is usually a good index of. Uh, the investment and how, how much uh, economic uh, activities are happening in the country. And the BMI has dropped to a, a historical uh, low uh, in China. So this means that uh, the quarantine and all these uh, regulations really sh uh, make the, uh, the economic to a halt. Uh, so now it's a slowly recovering. The government is very anxious for for the, to, to reopen the factories. Uh, they're even sending charter bus and charter flights to get a migrant worker back to, to the factory. But uh, what we found is larger companies are more likely to, to open because in, in order to open a, a business, they have to meet certain uh, health requirements to prevent uh, coronavirus uh, spread again. But small and medium-sized uh, companies, so business are it's it's harder for them to meet these uh, criteria. You know, uh, for for example, the each person has to be two two and a half meters aside. Uh, so so things like that, and small and the medium. 
uh, companies are also more likely to work in the service uh, uh, sector, and now there's really not much demand uh, in China. Uh, so so we'll see this uh, reopening will be very gradual. Okay. Let's turn back to uh, how individuals are dealing with coronavirus. Uh, Mashid, uh, if you could talk about hospitals and doctor offices and when people should go and or, or should they be avoiding them mm-hmm. at all costs? What, what's your mm-hmm. guidance? So uh, generally speaking, I don't think people should change their health-seeking behaviors, frankly. I think uh, if there's a routine visit and you're an older adult and you're multiply comorbid, maybe you can delay that visit, reschedule it for further down the line. Uh, but, you know, it's tricky because particularly for older adults uh, who may have many medical conditions, chronic conditions, uh, delaying a, a, a office visit or an ambulatory care visit can be um, consequential, mm. right? So if they've run out of their medicine, they need refills, they need their blood pressure checked, there's many reasons why people do need to be seen in the doctor's office. Um, I would say if you don't have an emerging condition or, uh, you know, you have another routine or more ur- urgent but not an emergent issue, probably avoid emergency departments, mm-hmm. um, not just because you may be putting yourself at risk for exposure to the disease, but also it's a strain that can be avoided. It's a strain on the healthcare system that can be avoided. Uh, but I think that if people have questions about, um, you know, par- particularly like an at- at-risk individuals who are older and multiply comorbid, they can contact their doctor's offices and kind of also get guidance from them as to what they should do. Uh, any general guidance uh, after 24 hours of fever, after three days of fever? I mean, what what's the tipping point for when you should go in? Uh, if you have concern for coronavirus, you mean? Yeah. or um, so uh, the first symptoms are, are high fever, cough, and headache is a big component of it. And as I mentioned before, the overlap with the flu and coronavirus symptoms, is, is there's a lot of overlap there. Uh, so I think that uh, if you are someone who has other health issues, you probably want to go in sooner rather than later if there's a concern, particularly if you're concerned you may have been exposed or you travel to an endemic area. Uh, if you're an otherwise younger and healthier person, you may be able to kind of extend that time frame to more like 40, 48 or 72 hours. Uh, but there's other other symptoms you should watch out for as well. So, for example, if you are uh, dehydrated and you're not eating, you're not drinking, you're vomiting, uh, if there's more to it, then uh, obviously you want to go in sooner. Um, Wouldn't the niftiest thing be if you could get on Skype and talk to your doctor remotely? So it's interesting you bring that up. So it depends on the healthcare system. So some healthcare systems and hospitals uh, have taken up uh, telemedicine and virtual care um, a lot more significantly than others. And within hospitals and health systems, some specialties and disciplines have more than others. Uh, so the trend, at least in our area, is that specialty care and surgical care actually does a lot more of telemedicine and virtual care than primary care. Uh, so I think it's a mixed bag there, but but I think that when we think uh, more uh, into the future and for these kind of epidemics or pandemics, that yes, that's absolutely a solution. Laurie, you've studied telemed. What do you think? Yeah, I think that telemedicine is going to have a significant role in this response as COVID-19 becomes widespread because it really does have the potential to improve triage um, and help with the management of scarce resources like limited hospital beds, um, you know, limited emergency department physicians are practicing in person. So, you know, telemedicine in general has been slow to touch on. Um, and it's been around for decades. We've been talking about it for decades. And 
our research actually shows that only about 4% of the population has ever had a video visit, um, despite the fact that it, it's been around for a long time. And, um, you know, the fusion of innovation happens very slowly, especially in healthcare. Um, but there are also um, a number of regulatory and reimbursement barriers that have prevented um, the greater growth of telemedicine. And as Nasheed pointed out, you know, some health systems are using this um, pretty aggressively, some aren't. There are some very large direct-to-consumer telemedicine companies that have uh, physicians who are licensed in all 50 states. Um, but in general, I don't think any of the systems could handle millions of people you know, seeking telemedicine and care at the same time. Um, this would have to be something that, you know, if it's more localized, uh, it would be able to be managed effectively um, over telemedicine. So, um, in really, you know, telemedicine could be key in supporting a social distancing kind of mass quarantine scenario. Um, a person who's sitting at home, for example, could use um, a direct-to-consumer telemedicine type company to assess the need for in-person care, and that can help them um, avoid showing up at a physical site of care like an emergency department where they could potentially uh, be exposed to coronavirus. Uh, it's interesting, you know, we've seen that uh, telemedicine is already being used in um, a few different ways in the response. Um, for one thing, you know, as I mentioned, some of these large uh, telemedicine companies are screening patients for coronavirus. You know, they typically see a lot of flu, and, and now they're thinking about um, coronavirus and reporting potential cases to the CDC. Um, we're also seeing some health systems converting office visits, in, for example, for chronic illnesses, um, to telehealth when they can, um, when something looks um, like it could be managed over telehealth, there's been some conversion happening. We've seen that in the news. And then also um, it's used within hospital settings. So a clinician down the hall might use it to treat a patient in isolation in a hospital. Um, and that really helps in limiting the number of providers that need to be in the room with the patient um, and could potentially be exposed to coronavirus. So lots of interesting ways that it's already starting to be used and um, could potentially see you know, greater growth if this becomes more widespread. Interesting. We do have a question uh, from the line of Morgan Fairchild. Your line is open. Oh, thank you. Hello, hi. Um, hi. <laughs> good morning or good afternoon. Listen, I'm uh, curious about the morbidity rate. Um, it, you know, they started off saying 1.3% and 1 to 2%. Uh, some of the things I'm seeing out of Iran look like they're 3.3%. Uh, what do you guys see as the latest on the mortality rate? So uh, the mortality seems like out of uh, all the cases, 20% uh, are the severe cases. And my understanding is that the mortality rate is anywhere uh, from 1% to 2% currently. And I'll defer to Jennifer if you have more updated numbers. Well, we usually characterized it in epidemiology, we said it's a case fatality. That means among those who are confirmed with having the virus, how many of them eventually died. Uh, so we see various uh, numbers on this. Uh, according to WHO, the case fatality rate in Wuhan is much higher than in other cities in, in China, and also higher than the cases we've seen outside. China. So there are uh, multiple hypotheses on why Wuhan has such a high fatality. It, it could be the health system is not good enough, the treatment is not on par, or it could be that indeed they have a virus a strain that has higher fatality. So all these possibilities are there. So uh, without understanding the full picture of the epidemic, uh, especially outside China, it's very difficult to say, you know, what is the case fatality for now? 
I, I think what happened in Wuhan is a lot of patients being turned away. Uh, you know, as just as Machine mentioned earlier, when the quarantine uh, policies started in Wuhan, uh, people are not really aware of what's going on, and suddenly, you know, everything the public uh, transportation disappeared. So lots of people panicked, and everyone who has any symptoms of upper respiratory system went to the healthcare. And at the time, the testing is not ready. Uh, so lots of people being turned away, and they usually only kept those patients who are very ill. So that can artificially raise the case fatality rate. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Morgan. Uh, just a couple of questions from me before we wrap up. Uh, just to go back to the individual level, we've we've talked about how masks are not essential, and we've talked uh, about taking care for about when you might go to the doctor or the hospital. Uh, we have not yet talked about things like uh, stockpiling food or supplies or sheltering in place. Uh, Laurie, maybe those are some points that you could touch on. Sure. So the CDC hasn't made official recommendations to Americans that they start to stockpile food and water specifically for coronavirus. Um, but FEMA has had recommendations in place for years and years now that communities and, you know, households should have preparedness kits or kits just in their homes um, that would include things like a three-day three supply of food and water and medications that you may need, you know, if you have an infant in the house, um, formula, if that's how you're feeding your baby, diapers, that sort of thing. So those recommendations have been in place for years, and I, I think those, you know, still apply here. There are some people who are starting to worry about a shelter-in-place emergency, you know, where there could be mass quarantine. And, you know, those folks are starting to think about um, storing in their homes, you know, two weeks to four weeks worth of food, you know, water, other household essentials um, that, you know, having on hand would prevent the need to go out. So, um, you know, that's not something that CDC is specifically advocating for at this point, but, you know, some people are planning in that way. Um, so, if you have the space and the and, um, the uh, money to, to buy extra supplies, um, that that's an option. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Laurie. Uh, I think we will wrap it up here. We have a uh, time of 2.28 p.m. in Santa Monica. Uh, thank you, Mashid, here in Santa Monica. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer and Laurie and Andrew and Liz and Warren. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Uh, we appreciate this, and we will send around a link to the call when it's ready. Uh, this concludes our call. Thanks for participating, and have a great day. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.